0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of DevOps Decrypted. Um, this is our 10th episode now, tipping the CICD scales. I'm your host, Romy Greenfield, and joining me today, uh, we have Jobin, and we also have Rasmus. Say hi, guys.
1: Hello, hello. Hello.
0: Hi. Um, so we've got a treat for you today. We've uh, been doing an, an interview with GitLab. Um, about CICD and scaling Uh, so that will be coming in a little bit Um, but we're going to talk a bit about DevOps in the news so I noticed that Atlassian had a little bit of a (laughs) boo-boo recently
1: (laughs) at the worst time possible because it was happening right (laughs) when the Atlassian what was previously called Summit the Atlassian Teams event was happening Um, yeah I I don't know Rasmus have you heard about the event at all?
2: Yep, yep. We were uh, helping, you know, monitor booths and things. So indirectly heard about the outage and yeah, it's not the best timing ever. We started hearing about the background of it and, and trying to think about how that would fit into something like a CRCD pipeline almost is, is on my mind on that.
1: Speaking of the event, so what exactly happened? I, I, I was actually reading the um, article published by Sri Vishwanath um, about what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I think it was, again, a classic case where everything went wrong, uh, right? Uh, So there was a communication gap at first where, uh, you know, uh, the team... So this all happened because of the uh, plugin that or the add-on app Atlassian had called Insight. Uh, So this has now become part of the Atlassian functionality, a core feature within Atlassian. But since it was an app earlier... They had to clean up instances which already had this app installed. So what they wanted to do was they wanted to clean up this app Mm -hmm. and the team that provided the IDs of this app instead provided the IDs of the actual application itself. So basically instead of providing the ID of the app, they gave the ID of the Jira instance itself. That was the first thing that went wrong. So there was a communication gap. (laughs) Yeah, Big
0: big whoops.
1: (laughs) Communication is important, right? (laughs)
0: Yes, apparently so.
1: (laughs) Apparently so. So what happened next was Atlassian usually marks it for deletion and then removes it later. But Mm -hmm. here what happened was the script actually permanently deleted it. So boom, instead of deleting the Insight app, what happened was they deleted the entire application itself. So all those customers who had Insight previously installed, it's all gone. (laughs) Boom. So that's what happened. Now, why wouldn't it be, you know, reverted back within a day or maybe in a few hours? Because Atlassian had the backups, right? But here's where it gets interesting. The customers live together in an instance, right? So they had the backup for the entire entire, uh, ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. So they could revert it back immediately. But what they couldn't do was they couldn't pick and choose the customer and revert back that particular customer alarm. That's where things get trickier. Now you have like 400 plus customers who have lost their data, but many more customers are living together, which means if you're trying to replace those 400 plus customers, you're also putting the other customers back to the time when the event occurred, mm-hmm. which means they will be losing data. And at last, thing couldn't risk doing that, right? Yeah. So, what they decided was let's take these 400 plus customers, start you know, selectively restoring data for those customers. And that was not automated. So instead of doing it in an hour or 10 hours, it took two weeks, right? Still happening? I don't know. But yeah, that was a big outage.
2: It just, it seems like a classic case of, why wasn't that already automated? Both on kind of the operational front of, well, here's a change. We need to deactivate this old thing Let's just have somebody go run the script to do the thing. And then that introduces this huge risk of human error, getting yeah. their own IDs, not testing it. Whereas if you codify, even in a pipeline with test environments and tests and so on, you can go hit the button that goes and you know, messes the test environment. You can validate, yep, did what it was. And then you just say, okay, we have it codified. We're going to run the exact same thing In this other environment and it's going to be great and it would have been great and then when it starts cascading well that thing wasn't automated the recovery wasn't automated and so on so in my head everything nowadays needs to be a pipeline it's just everything
0: yeah i mean who hasn't accidentally deleted some production data before
1: <laughs> exactly. This is not the first time that it has happened, that it has happened. This mm-hmm. probably won't be the last, right? Definitely not. But, <laughs> yeah, but as Rasmus said, you know, uh, f- figure out what's, you know, w- where are the possible uh, cases where things can go wrong? And probably this is why Chaos Engineering is such a big thing these days, right? I mean, you have to think outside of the box and create some chaos which you never anticipated and then see how our systems react to it.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a good point because they obviously had um, thought about if every single instance had accidentally been deleted. Cool. We've got a quick automated way of getting that straight back up and running. Uh, we didn't think that we'd ever be um, mistaken enough to do it one by one <laughs> and only get a small subset. Um, so, you know, they, they had the big picture, but the de- the detail there was missing for an individual instance.
2: There may also be some signs of like short-term thinking and cultural problems in that if you live in a culture where you try to do all the things in a nice long term, like we'll automate these things because that might come in handy later rather than well this happened several times before already, but let's just keep doing it the same way and hope. Mm-hmm. There's you know, think long-term, adjust your culture to be healthy, and then these kinds of issues will be far less likely to, to occur.
1: Yeah, and I must say that Atlassian is usually in the forefront of doing that. They, they advocate doing that. Uh, and the irony is that this has happened to Atlassian. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so th- th- there's a little bit of irony in there. But again, that also shows us that you know, this can happen to anyone, any company, right? Yep. Uh, so we always have to uh, yeah, keep that in mind uh, while designing our systems and designing our uh, disaster dis- uh, recovery process.
0: Yeah, no matter how big you are, you can still make mistakes. (laughs) Exactly. So what else has been going on in the news?
1: Oh, I I think there's another uh, vulnerability issue that was with the Spring Boot. Uh, We we talked about the Log4j one in one of our previous uh, episodes, so I don't want to go into the details of this, but this Mm -hmm. again proves the same point, right? So all these open source libraries that you're using, there's going to be some vulnerabilities out there which will come up sooner or later. Uh, so you have to be prepared. Uh, so again, going back to the point that Rasmus was making, right? Mm-hmm. make sure you have a robust CACD pipeline. So you should be able to you know, quickly turn around, uh, fix it and turn around uh, uh, with the new deployment that goes into production uh, once your vulnerability is identified. Uh, that's very, very important.
2: Yeah, you, you really should both have the right security type standing in there so you yourself will find out when some issue comes up or a CVE is being announced. And then have the robustness and speed to be able to say, okay, this is an issue now. We need to fix it here, here, and here. Let the pipes roll, deploy all the updates. Okay, we're good.
1: That's a very good point, and good that you mentioned about having our own security checks and vulnerability scanning. Um, Mm -hmm. Tools like GitLab does that. So probably when we're going on the interview, uh, probably today we'll be speaking more on the CI/CD pipelines and scaling it, Uh, but this also shows the importance of having tools like GitLab, which addresses a lot of that security scanning, vulnerability scanning as part of the core product itself.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's important to have that in. Um, So now we're gonna go over to our interview that we recorded earlier with GitLab. Enjoy. Hello everyone, today we are joined by Adrian Waters who is a senior solutions architect for GitLab. Um, And we're gonna talk a bit about GitLab CICD and what they've got on offer
3: Okay, thanks, Romy. Um, yeah, just to give a brief bit of information about myself, as, uh, as Romy mentioned, I'm a solution architect with with GitLab. I've been here a good few years now, and I work within our channel organisation. So, work with some of our great partners such as Adaptivist. And going back in, you know, previous lives, I've, I've been in the, um, you know, the DevOps type space for many, many years. Often, you know, or before it was actually called DevOps. Um, so, yeah, really pleased to be here today.
1: That's awesome. Uh, welcome to the show, Adrian. Um, so a lot of our customers are using GitLab these days, and we all know what the USB for GitLab is. It covers all of the stages of DevOps. You know There are so many wonderful features like auto DevOps, which helps us you know, get up and running really, really fast. Uh, from your perspective, what are some of the things that we need to watch out for in GitLab? What's, what is standing out?
3: I think if you if you look back over the last sort of uh, I don't know how many years four or five years and the way that GitLab has expanded from being um, you know a, a version control tool with some um, you know CI capabilities to cater for that full lifecycle, um, I think that was a, a really inspired you know move back in time because it it's now becoming the way that uh, you know analysts are seeing the market going into this sort of more value stream development platform. Approach um, so reducing the number of tools that you have to have in your tool chain, which simplifies you know effort in terms of maintaining them, costs associated with that. But it also gives a much better user experience because you've got you know common user interface. It's easier to onboard users. You have a better uh, storage uh, data storage, which aids analytics, value stream analytics, compliance, audit, etc. Um, so I, I think that that approach that. GitLab has and has had for many years, um, you know, really puts us in in a good position moving forward.
1: That sounds great. So, what you're saying is GitLab is not just SCM or CACD. There is a lot more to it uh, than that.
3: Yeah, I, I, absolutely. You know, from you know initial planning ideas, you know, through to the development, through to the testing, security, you know, side of things, packaging up artifacts, facts, deploying them. Into your production environments, monitoring them in your production environments, and so on. You know that that's all part and parcel of the you know the GitLab GitLab platform approach, um, and gives you so many benefits. I mean, what we're not saying is never use any other tools. You know, because mm-hmm. there will all be there may always be a reason why you want to use a particular tool, and so having great integration capabilities is also really important. Um, but for every third party tool. That you can take out of your tool chain, you're simplifying life for yourself as, a, as an organization, and you're allowing you know more focus on your core business of you know developing software and releasing software. Um, so you know that's, we, we we see that as a pretty compelling argument, and, and it, it's now sort of picked up by you know uh, people as, such as Gartner and so on who who recognise this as a real trend within the industry. Um, you know, where where companies themselves see themselves now go into try and simplify their tool chains.
1: Absolutely, it's good that you brought up the um, integration part because uh, I think just the last year Atlassian, for example, uh, released their Open DevOps platform and it integrates with GitLab. So I can see where it is going. Um, good trend indeed. Uh, Now, the focus of the podcast is obviously CACD and the pipelines. Uh, So let me ask you one question about that. Uh, What I really liked about GitLab is your auto DevOps capability. Um, I don't know if you can maybe expand a little bit more, but that is indeed helping customers, you know, um, taking on GitLab and starting up with uh, developing pipelines and creating pipelines.
3: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we, we, we know what's involved in creating a pipeline. You know, what, what, however the pipeline is defined, you've got to start with something and build it up and add the capabilities to build your, your applications and to test them and to deploy them. Uh, with Auto, Auto DevOps, GitLab does that for you. You know, so without ha- having to create any pipeline, it will analyze your application, you know, determine the best way to, to build it, Um, If you want to give it a bit of a clue, you can, Um, you know, how to to sort of uh, build your application. But it will then go on to run, uh, you know, a wide variety of security tests, whether they're static security, dynamic, um, container scanning, et cetera. Um, On your your, your application, um, it will deploy that into a a preview environment where you can then test the application uh, with the changes that you've just made. Um, you can then take it further and deploy it out into production and so on if you so so wish. And that's all without having to create anything, without having to write any pipeline. So from a sort of, a, you know, a speed of, you know, starting a project to getting a, a best-in-breed pipeline up and running, um, you know, it, it just takes all that effort uh, away from you. Now, not, not everybody will want to do things in, if you like, the prescriptive way that Auto DevOps, you know, Determines what this pipeline should look like, so you can incorporate parts of that pipeline into your own pipeline if you want, or you can configure it to be, you know, to, to work in slightly different ways. But the the, the basic premise of, of auto DevOps and the pipeline it creates is based on you know many many years of experience of, of what a good you know pipeline would look like, and to be able to, to be able to have that delivered to you more or less out of the box with you without you having to configure anything and, and develop anything, you know, is really powerful. Um, and then being able to take that on and, and customise it, if you so wish, gives you that flexibility to do the things that are maybe outside of that more prescriptive approach.
0: That sounds really cool, especially if it's your, your first experience dealing with CICD, you have no idea what's going on. That's really just to teach you about it, even if you – don't even end up using GitLab. That's that's an amazing feature to give people exposure.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and you know I think the the end to end structure of it is is really sound. And mm-hmm. uh, but if you look at you know what's going on w- within software now, you know the, the around security and vulnerabilities, and you know if if you were to sort of look at okay, well from day one we want to make sure that our software is 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 as robust as possible from a security you know, posture perspective, Um, being able to have all of that, you know, as I say, whether it's static, it's looking for secret detections, it's looking at what versions of open source libraries are you pulling into your code, maybe unwittingly, Um, what licenses, what open source licenses are you pulling into your, your, your application, again, maybe unwittingly, without the developer having to really think about that, having all that in place, um, by using Auto DevOps, you know is is really amazing. It's a bit, you know, slightly mind blowing when you actually see it in action.
1: Right, and I agree with Romy. I mean, it is super helpful when you're starting from scratch and you don't have to worry about creating pipelines and stuff. But even for experienced folks like myself and probably people from my team, right, when they're creating complex uh, pipelines. You can still make uh, take advantage of auto devops because you have a template to start from. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets interesting. All those things that you just mentioned, Adrian, the, the security testing, uh, vulnerability testing, all of those, you know, you don't have to build anything from scratch. You know, you need those, but you still have a template to work from. That, that is actually awesome. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, even even if you're writing your pipeline from scratch, being able to say pick, uh, you know, particular jobs, in effect, the templates out of Auto DevOps, you know, is also really powerful. So you, you might have your own pipeline, but you want to do some DAST, some dynamic security testing. Well, you know, we've got, we've got a job as part of Auto DevOps that will do that for you. So just include that template into your pipeline. Um, you've now got dynamic security testing with, without really having to sort of understand, you know, what's behind it.
1: Yep. And we, we were actually working on a white paper for everything else, God. And one of the key areas we touched step one was pipelines as code. And this is mm-hmm. a very good example of pipeline as code, you know, auto devops and the GitLab CA and the other templates that we have in place. So everything you have as code and you take it, you modify it as you like. Um, yeah. So I think super stuff.
0: Can you get all of the templates like as YAML and then just...
3: Yes. So, so in effect, for, for those who maybe aren't aware, a GitLab CI CD pipeline is defined as YAML. And Auto DevOps is a collection of um, YAML templates to handle the different jobs within an Auto DevOps pipeline. So one job to build the software, you know, one, one to do um, uh, static security testing, maybe one to create a preview environment, one to do a deployment, etc. So Auto DevOps wraps all of those up into a single super template. But you have access to that and you have access to all the individual templates for all those individual jobs. So you can just include the template into your own pipeline and, you know, away you go.
0: Perfect. So And, simple. and, and more importantly, <laughs> you,
3: can, you, you can see the content of that template as well. So you know, if you want to use it as a learning exercise or you want to, uh, you know, customize it, maybe it doesn't, you know, work in quite the way that you want, um, you have access to that YAML. Um, so you can in- enhance it and uh, you know, change it as, as your needs demand.
1: That's awesome. And that's also a perfect segue into our next question, uh, which is for pipeline architecture. Um, so I do see that GitLab gives, on a high level, three different architectures. Uh, a basic architecture, there's the next one called DAG. Uh, I should get the acronym correct here. Directed acrylic graph. And then you have child pair and pipelines. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, the different architectures?
3: Yeah, certainly. So, so I, I would say if you like go go back in time, the you know the the, the standard pipeline, the typical pipeline that uh, you know you might de- describe would be sequential. So you're starting doing something on the left, and when that finishes, you do the next thing, then you do the next thing, and then you do the next thing, uh, and ultimately you get to the right hand side, which is probably deploying into. You know, production or staging, Um, and then to improve the performance of that pipeline, you might run certain jobs in parallel. Um, So the 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 first job will often be build your software. The second job might be uh, sorry, the second stage in that pipeline might be running several tests, different types of tests, but they can be done in parallel. So you 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 shorten the overall um, you know overall duration of the pipeline, and when all of those parallel jobs are finished. You then go on and start running jobs in the next stage of that, that pipeline. You can't deploy the software until it's been built or I suppose you could deploy it before it's been tested, whether that's a good idea or not. Probably depends where you're deploying it to. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, but it's, so it's a fairly structured approach. You know, Start on the left, work across to the right with some parallelization where it's appropriate. But you also get uh, you know situations where there, there isn't really a need to wait for jobs to finish. There, are, You know, a, a, a job further to the right of a pipeline isn't actually dependent on jobs further to the left. Uh-huh. So um, you, you you could say, for example, well, if I want to do some static analysis of my code, I don't need to wait for the software to be built to do that. You know, there, there isn't necessarily a, a dependency on that. Um, where, whereas if I want to deploy... My changes into a pod running on Kubernetes. I I'm, I have to have created that pod before I can do that. So there's a dependency. Now what? We, we, even within a more sort of static pipeline, you can remove the dependencies. So uh, a job that would typically be in say stage two or three um, could start running straight away as soon as the pipeline's kicked off, or it could start running at the end of the, the the first stage because it's not dependent on it so you you can right. define you can define that sort of dependency or that lack of dependency a, a dag a, um oh, i've got to think now <laughs>
1: <laughs> <A> <laughs> DAG They're
3: DAG pip- yeah that's it you go there uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that that is a much more flexible pipeline where where really you're not so focusing on that sort of left to right behavior, you've got sort of relationships between different jobs um, that uh, will control you know, when and, and how they're executed. So within GitLab, um, there's, a, there's a different view um, that allows you to sort of look at that sort of scenario. Because if you, if you look at just the standard pipeline, you can't see those dependencies, you can't see the relationship between those jobs, other than they look as if they're moving from left to right. Um, whereas in the um, uh, 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 DAG environment, you have a different view that sort of highlights where the dependencies between jobs are, so it allows you to track it through. You know, I I think
1: must say that I especially like that view because, as you said, it gives you the dependency uh, yes. between the different jobs. So th- that helps, especially when you're debugging something.
3: Yeah, yeah and I think it, it can also help when you're looking to optimize performance of the pipeline as well, because you can see, you know, where you know, where the dependencies and the critical paths are.
1: Good point, yeah.
3: And then the final, you, you mentioned where- um uh, parent,
1: parent pipelines.
3: Parent-parent child pipelines, yeah. So there, there, there's, you know, maybe um, uh, a fourth that is slightly different, which is the sort of multi-project pipelines. Um, so, but, but either way, um, it allows you to say, well, rather than having one large pipeline, you can split that up into multiple pipelines, and you can use one pipeline to trigger another pipeline um, mm-hmm. or trigger multiple other pipelines. And there's, there's a distinction with multi project pipelines, you're looking at where your um, uh, code is split up into multiple projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you've got one for building software and then you've got other projects that will actually do deployments or something. Um, so you can trigger one from the other. The parent-child pipelines are similar, but they're within the same project. So if you've got one large code base, um, you can have a, a, a pipeline that will trigger other pipelines within that same project. So that that could be useful in a sort of monorepo type environment maybe. Um, where uh, you don't want to run all the pipelines every time because it's a monorepo, it's large, it's gonna take mm-hmm. a long time. Um, but so that, that, that's the sort of the, the distinction between the two. And I think the parent-child pipeline can be useful if, you're, if you've got a large project and you've got a complex pipeline, mm-hmm. then it can start to become you know, more difficult to understand and to manage and so on, and being able to separate that out. Um, can make it more readable for one thing. Um but I think more importantly it can, can become more selective as to when you actually execute that child pipeline. You know, so only execute it if something has changed that is relevant to what that pipeline is doing.
0: Um, yeah. We actually use parent child in um script runner because it has so many unique features. Um, so we we do have that functionality and it helps us a lot. It's really sped up um as deploying code to production. For example, if we only change something as part of the enhanced search feature, we don't need to run all of the functionality, all of the tests against scheduled jobs, script listeners, all of that. So actually we've saved a hell of a lot of time um, deploying enhanced search because of that parent-child relationship. So it can be really, really useful when you do have a big big
3: project. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, That's that's a good use case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned about monorepos. I still remember that was a big issue back uh, probably a few years back because not many tools actually supported monorepos. So if I remember correctly, Google. 95% 95 percent of the code for Google resides in a single repository, and they had to actually write specific, different uh, tools to you know handle that monorepo situation. Right? Uh, they they spent a lot of money in writing their own CACD mechanisms, and um, with tools like GitLab, it becomes a lot lot easier when I was using uh, one of the other tools in the past, I had to actually write a plugin to handle this scenario because there were so many dependencies and everything was in a single repository. Obviously, you didn't want to kickstart the entire build when a particular folder in that changed, right? That was a big problem. But I think tools like GitLab, it actually handles that really, really well. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, how you can you know, uh, build a monorepo using GitLab?
3: Yeah, sure, and I, I think there's a, a couple of different areas of challenges, really. You know, one one is is almost inherent to Git in that you know Git was not really designed for you know you know su- super large repos, and you know although there have been you know I guess extensions and so on, LFS, you know to help with that, you know at, at, at its core, it's not really what Git was designed for, you know back in the day. Um, so having, you know, capabilities that will support if somebody wants to, you know, suddenly have a 5, 10, 20 gigabyte repo or whatever it may be, um, and for it not to grind things to a halt, you know, that is one consideration. Um, and then the other, the other side of it is, is it being usable and having functionality, you know, that, that makes it use, usable for individual developers, individual teams, you know, that's a slightly different, you know, side to it um on on the 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 more sort of just uh, volume based challenges that that it can bring then you know supporting things like lfs is really important which which gitlab has done um our, our architecture of using a service called gitly um you know to optimize the performance of um you know read writes to the underlying data you know, that that's really important um to give you that sort of throughput um been able to do partial clones, you know, so that whenever a developer is working on this 20 gig repo that they don't have to pull the whole 20 gig down they can, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, isolate certain parts, whether it's limiting file size or file paths or object types and and so on. So all all of those are important to um, make it usable in the first place, not get swamped by the volume of data. I think the, on the, uh, more of the functionality side, um, what we already mentioned there about uh, a child parent-child pipelines is really important. Um, you know, being able to, you know, structure your monorepo into, you know, folders or directories that have, um, you know, their their own purpose, you know, defined purpose, and so being able to have pipelines within those that then can control um, using. The um, GitLab rules um, syntax within the YAML, so to define, you know, I'm only going to run this job if something in this part of the repo changes. Otherwise, I'm mm-hmm. not going to bother. Um, you know, that that becomes really really important. Um,
1: yeah, we were I, actually I love- specifically using those GitLab rules. I mean, that that that's so much helpful because you can define, okay, if this changes, and build this one. Uh, Yet build a particular repository only if the dependency changes and so on different ways you can handle that using that rules uh, keyword right
3: yeah yeah and, and and I think one of the other areas of functionality that is really useful is around code owners um, because if 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 you've got a you know very large repo with thousands and thousands of files in it that everybody has, has got access to and change, um, you can create a bit of the Wild West out mm. there. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, Git again, you know, its permission model was not designed as tightly as maybe some other, you know, version control systems from the past. Um, and so being able to use code owners to give some governance to, uh, you know, who who is allowed to change which files in which parts of this monorepo. Mm-hmm. But also going beyond that and into sort of the approval you know, processes that you can build with GitLab is then saying, okay, if somebody's changed something in this, you know, peripheral bit of software that isn't too important, I may be not, I'm not so worried about, uh, you know, the details of the approval process. If somebody changes something at the core of the application or they mm-hmm. change the, um, you know, API structure or something, then I want to make sure our, our DRI in that area has eyes on that change and approves it before it gets, you know, brought into the, into the code base. So I think having that flexibility to you know, control different parts of the repo whether it's through a pipeline or whether it's through things like the approvals and code owners those are really important aspects.
1: That's actually awesome because what you're telling me is it's not just accountability you, know, you can control who is doing what where and security and compliance teams are probably going to love that aspect of GitLab.
3: Yeah I think um, you know, appro- approvals are an interesting topic because you're, you want to use approvals to apply governance, but you don't want them to become a block. You don't want them to be, you know, onerous and, and stop the flow of developing and releasing software, you know, quickly. Yeah. Um, so so the, the, the ability within those approvals to say, um, OK, I'm only going to involve Fred if something has changed that, you know, really Fred needs to be aware of or yeah. maybe flipping it to look, looking at security um, I'm only going to involve the security team from an approvals perspective if there are still some serious you know critical vulnerabilities that have been introduced by the changes just made um, that they need to give their approval for you know if if we've not got any security vulnerabilities then we don't want to include the security team you know there, there's no need to waste their time doing that so, Having having that sort of intelligence around how those approvals are applied, you know, to control what what then becomes part of your code base, you know, is again key. And I think with a with a mono repo, that's all tends to be exacerbated because you've got everything in that one place.
1: Yeah, yeah. that makes total sense. Sorry, Romy, you were going to say something. <laughs> Sorry, I was just agreeing. <laughs> Sounds good. Now, you, you mentioned a good point about you know a lot of developers working on those single cord base, uh, especially if it is a monorepo, that, that's going to be the case, right? And one of the things in GitLab that I liked a lot about is merge strains, uh, the yep. way you can queue your mergers. So d- do you want to talk a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, I, I, I love merge strains. I, I, I think it's a great, great capability and really powerful. Um, and as you say, especially in larger repos, um, you know, or, or mono repos, you know, in an I- ideal world, developer makes a change, they test it, they think it's great, and they press the merge button, and, and that's it, job done. Um, the, the reality in the real world is it's not always like that. Uh, you've got sort of many developers working in the same same sort of area, creating changes, um, trying to merge them at or around the same same time. So as a developer, what do you do? Do you sort of know that well when changes emerge you potentially get conflicts so do you say okay i'll, I'll let my colleague go first and then i'll see what is the result of his merges and then i'll come along and try mine and then my other colleague he can wait until i've finished and so on it's not it's not very devopsy really is it
0: no so
3: <laughs> what what merge trains do is is bring some automation and, and some intelligence to it. it it's something that's quite difficult to describe a visual really really helps um, but, but basically, uh, when you come to do your, your merge, your merge request goes into a train, a train of merge requests. So if you've got four or five developers all working on the same monorepo, um, all wanting to merge, the merge requests get queued into a train and the first, um, uh, the Carriage. first merge request, it, the first <laughs> merge request in that train will do a, a, a simulated merge of what it would look like if it, it actually merged into the parent branch. Um, and But it doesn't actually apply it to the parent branch because what you don't want to do is break the parent branch. You, know, you mm-hmm. don't want to break the build. Um, so it, it, it will do a merge um, uh, that will result in, in a branch in exactly the same ways if you were merging into the parent. And if it finds a problem, then that will get flagged up to the, to, to the developer, the owner of the merge request, but that merge request will be taken out of the merge train. So the rest of the merge requests in that train can progress. But the clever bit is, is that it doesn't do them in sequence, it does them in parallel. So for, for example, if you've got three merge requests in a merge train, it's going to try and merge all three in parallel The first one, it will merge the changes that the developer has made with the current state of the parent branch. The second merge request in the train is going to do a a simulated merge of the current status of the parent branch and the changes that have been made in the first merge request in the train. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: And the third merge request is going to do a simulated merge based on the contents of the parent branch and each of the first two um, merge requests ahead of it in the train. I said it was difficult to explain.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> so. no, no, no. Uh, so, so, so let me get this right. So you have MR1, 2, and 3. What he was saying is they will be happening in parallel, although slightly uh, different because, you know, one came first, two came second, three came third, but they will yeah. still be happening in parallel, and one and three might be completed. So first, one will be merged with master then three will be merged. And by the time two is completed, two will be merged with that one plus two plus, so one plus three, right? So everything will be merged together at the end.
3: Yeah, so, so, so basically if, if a, a merge request nearer to the front of the train um, passes without any problems, then that's fantastic because we know we've already been testing the merge for the merge requests to the right, right. in the mm-hmm. train. With the changes in that successful merge, so they can just carry on. Those merge requests can carry on. Yeah. Um, uh, if a say the merge request of the at the head of the train fails, it, you know conflict mm-hmm. is identified or something, then it is taken out of the train, and all of the pipelines of the other jobs in that train, sorry, of all the, uh, the merge requests in that train, they will be restarted, taking those changes of the failed merge request out of oh.
1: their scenario that makes sense yeah
3: well so, yes. so as a developer you don't really need you, you don't really need to worry about it you know you, you you finish your changes you've done your code review you've got all your tests passed you've got your approvals through you hit the button to say you know add this to a merge train please and away you go you can go off and move on to the next thing the 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 only time you will then get drawn back into any investigation is if your specific merge request causes a conflict. Um, right. Otherwise, you will gradually move along the train, and uh, at, at some point, then be merged into the to the parent branch.
1: So, what you're saying is, no matter how hard it is to explain without a diagram, as a developer, <laughs> I don't have to worry about it because I'm getting pulled in. <laughs> I'm getting pulled in only if my code fails. That that's yes. great. Okay, and, and, that's, second, and that's fair enough. That, that uh, is fair enough. Yeah. Second thing is, I would say. There's a wonderful documentation out there. I have seen it. I like the diagrams that you have in there. So if you didn't quite catch it during this podcast, I mean, you can still go back to the documentation and take a look at it. It's wonderful. You know, I like the idea of math strains as Adrian mentioned. That's why I, I brought it up in the first place. Um, yeah.
3: There, there is a video um, on our, our uh, GitLab Unfiltered channel as well that, um, you know, shows it in action, a, a demonstration with a, a project and a few pipelines.
1: That sounds good, probably a topic for one of our webinars too, upcoming webinars. I know there are a lot of other things that we can talk about because GitLab has a lot of other features that uh, I really wanted to talk about, you know, my request pipelines, my pipelines, you know, uh, how to customize the pipeline configurations using GitLab CI. Um, but I think we are going to be out of time soon, Romy.
0: Yeah, no, that's all been brilliant. It's been really informative. I love the sound of merge trains. I wish that, that that existed when I first started developing, because that would have saved me so much hassle. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you so much for joining us today, Adrian, and giving us all of that insider information. It's been a pleasure having you.
1: No problem. I've enjoyed it.
0: Excellent. And maybe we'll have you back one day.
1: (laughs) Okay. We will talk about all the topics that we couldn't cover in this particular podcast. Uh, Thanks a lot, uh, Adrian.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Well, thanks for inviting me along.
0: So thanks. uh, Thanks for listening to the GitLab interview. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, To wrap up today's show, let's talk about one thing that you think that we should be doing in DevOps. Is there anything based on today's episode that you think that people could be doing?
1: That's an interesting question. Uh, I can go first, Asmus, if you don't mind. Please go ahead. Uh, Yeah, we did discuss a lot of advanced techniques in that GitLab interview. Uh, Adrian was talking about meth strains, a lot of things that we can do, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will actually go back to the incident that we were talking about earlier, where um, Atlassian had a long outage of two weeks. Uh, this just makes me think that, you know, again, going back to the point I was talking about chaos engineering, see so how to look for opportunities where, uh, or at least, you know, look for scenarios where everything can go wrong, right? We don't usually do that. I mean, we prepare for, we we put our scientific hat on and we think, okay, this is what could happen and we are preparing for it, right? So mm-hmm. we automate the scripts preventing such things happening. But we have to sometimes think outside of the box and imagine a scenario where two teams makes the mistake, like what happened with Atlassian, and then everything going wrong because of that mistake. And how do we recover the systems back? Um, it, it could happen in our company. So let, let's look for opportunities like that where we can improve the whole process and how we recover our systems back.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and for me, it's hard to pick just kind of like one thing you should be doing in DevOps because it really is this whole holistic view of all the things. Mm-hmm. The closest I could get to that would be kind of cheating by calling out the one thing I think is the most important, which is just the culture of doing things differently, mm-hmm. doing things well, to be prepared, to automate, to test things well. All the kinds of tools, to me, almost kind of come after that just because if you have the right mindset in the first place, all of the other good things will fall. But then there are some things that can kind of help you arrive at that mindset. Like if you're still organizing yourselves in emails and IM and phone calls and these old structures, well, then you will tend to also you know, structure your tools and your silos and your teams as per how you, you think internally. In So to me, there are some interesting things like chat ops that really kind of challenge you on how you communicate, which in turn informs your culture, which in turn informs your tools. So at the end of the day, you get all three, people, process, tools, but you really have to start somewhere that helps you get the mindset to take care of all that stuff.
1: Rasmus, if I follow up with a question, so how do you think that cultural shift will happen? Does it happen top top down or bottom up? Bottom up.
2: I would say that my favorite is when it happens grassroots style and then gains support from the top, because it's so much easier to start with good employees that are already kind of like plugged in and eager to work in the new ways, rather than those that sit around in the back rooms smoking cigars while talking on the phone with somebody. They're they're going to be a lot harder whether you're doing up or down. So if you have the right people, if the masses are following the stuff already, and then you just bless it with support from up top, you're good. It's, it's gonna be a lot harder if you just come in and say, okay, everybody, we're doing chat-ups. Any questions? I took note kind of that funny.
1: you said it starts with good employees and then the Rasmus style. It means <laughs> that you're a good employee. I get it, fair point. <laughs>
0: I think uh, my advice would be whenever I've been writing a a script that's been potentially messing with some really important production customer data, I've always blocked out the actual doing of the, the changes until I'm absolutely confident and I've done it on a trial instance. That's just the one thing. Because, you know, we've all been there. Like I said, I've, I've accidentally deleted production data before and <laughs> not here, not at Adaptivist. Don't fire me. <laughs> but, you know, it happens. If, there, if there's not the tools in place to stop it from happening, then someone like me coming along <laughs> and doing it will hopefully encourage you to add the tools to stop it.
1: <laughs> well, if anything, history tells us that it can happen again. So mm-hmm. be prepared. Have your DS strategy in place, right?
0: Yeah, be prepared. <laughs> what is it? Fail if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail.
1: <laughs> there we go.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, I think that about wraps it up for today's episode. So, thank you for listening. Um, you can connect with us on our socials at Adaptivist. Um, let you let us know what you think of the show. Um, but for me, Romy. Um, From our speakers, Rasmus and Jobin, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on DevOps Decrypted, which is a part of the Adaptivist Live network.